Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. This show is produced by the Powell Group, the leading business consulting firm in the gaming industry. Visit us online at IndieGame.Business to learn about our online digital events. We have some amazing sessions with people in the gaming industry, and you can participate for free and purchase inexpensive passes to our industry-leading business-to-business system. Now, here we go, Indie Game Business. that this is the last talk for the indie game business march 2023 conference once again thank you to tripwire presents this is going to be awesome you're going to love this game we've got dylan geldig and he's a developer of peglin and this is a peg popping postmortem from a pandemic pandemic passion project <laughs> i will uh let dylan take it away and I'll see y'all later. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah, as Andy said, uh, this is Peglin, a peg pop and postmortem. Um, just going to kind of jump right into it. I'm going to go pretty quickly. So hopefully they'll uh, post the videos up after and can watch it at like 0.75 speed so that it kind of comes out normal. Because uh, we're going to be cramming the entire history of the game's lifetime so far, which is like just over three years. Uh, into like a 40-minute talk. So it should be a fun one. Uh, like I said, let's just dive right into it. Kind of a general overview. So just an introduction to myself and the game, just to provide some context and you know do the, the big business shilling, uh, very important. Uh, jump right into some analysis. Um, my kind of specialties are on like design, development, and marketing. Uh, the game is kind of mostly like a solo project that other people have like come on and joined. So like I was involved in everything, but I haven't done everything myself. Uh, those are my three specialties. So that's kind of what we're going to drill into. Uh, just a bit of a summary, the things that I can think of that are like most important for indies to take away from this. And then uh, just a quick, you know, what comes next for us and what, what does the future kind of look like? Uh, so yeah, my name is Dylan Gettig. I founded Red Nexus Games about eight years ago now. Uh, I've been making games for about 10 years. Uh, the company has mostly kind of operated on the side of full-time jobs. And I left my full-time job when Peglin really started to like take off. Um, and now most of the team is full-time and we're kind of growing a little bit. We never want to be like a big giant studio, um, but we do want to reach like a level of sustainability where one person doesn't just have to wear every single hat. Um, as Indy mentioned, like kind of Peglin was very much a pandemic passion project. Uh, I was working on a different side project that was like a little more grimmer a lot harder to find the fun and did a game jam before the pandemic where we had made Peglin. And so when everything started really locking down, that was kind of the obvious game to like return to. Um, and it really did a good job at like keeping me sane during the pandemic, which has been really nice. So this is Peglin. Um, some of you have probably seen it before, um, others maybe not. Uh, it's pretty simple to kind of grasp just from like a quick little thing. So 
You shoot your ball into the pegboard, bounce around. The amount of pegs that you hit is the amount of damage that you'll do to the enemies up top. And um, we have the kind of map from Slay the Spire. It's very heavily Slay the Spire inspired uh, because I think they just did an excellent job. And um, they've solved a lot of design problems that we could then kind of borrow from and then focus on a kind of new possibility space, which has worked really nicely for us. Um, and I've met the developers. They are very, very cool. Uh, they did not yell at me for borrowing heavily from their game, which I greatly appreciated. So always something to keep in mind is you don't have to reinvent uh, every single part of the wheel when you're making a new game. And I'll dig into that in a little bit. Uh, so here's kind of like some, some core facts about our results and like, you know, why this kind of worked, why I'm giving a, a postmortem on this game being success instead of one on why it flopped. Uh, we released into Steam Early Access almost a year ago now, April 25th, 2022. Um, we specifically priced the game pretty high because we had like a small dedicated community at the time. And we figured that those would be the people that would purchase the game. And we needed to have the funds to complete the game. Um, so we kind of did that. And then also like our team is still very small. I was the only person working full time at the time. Everyone else was part time. So we were really concerned about being overwhelmed. And so we wanted to try and spread out the game's like popularity instead of like, front loading it. You know, we could have gone the like vampire survivors route and priced really low and then bumped that up later. Uh, but we were worried and it turned out rightfully so. Um, we released with 75,000 wish lists on our launch date. We had 62,000 in the like two weeks leading up to that before you get into the Steam popular upcoming. Um, but the game just kind of exploded on launch day. It was like a really, really crazy launch day. And so we were expecting like 6,000 sales in that first week, which kind of lined up with some other um, calculators that we had seen, you know, like 10% of your kind of organic wish lists. And that was the number of players that had already had over 20 hours in our demo. So that kind of made sense to us to, you know, these are the players that are going to be happy to drop the $20. Like they've already gotten a, like a huge amount of content out of the game as it existed. That was one third of the game. So tripling that just kind of made like, you know, a lot of sense. Um, and that is just kind of not what happened at all. Um, a lot of big YouTubers and streamers came out on day one and just kind of rocketed the game. And then the Steam algorithm kind of took it and ran with it. Uh, so we were definitely extremely lucky. Um, we were also kind of blindsided, but we were prepared for it in a couple of different ways, which I'll kind of get into a little later as well. Um, and then it hasn't really slowed down. I mean, it's obviously slowed down past that first two weeks. Uh, but it still just kind of trucks along. And I think we still have an average of about 800 sales per day, um, which is pretty mind blowing to me just because it's like you always kind of feels like everyone that is, that has, you know, is going to hear about the game has already heard about the game. Um, but, you know, that is really not the case. And if you look at some of the, the big games in our genre, like there's still a lot of room to go. Um, so it's, it's a really exciting space to be in. So jumping right into it, I'm just going to like talk about some of the design elements and kind of what went well and what didn't, um, things to look out for when working on your own games. And then we'll move on into development and marketing as well. So this also kind of doubles as a bit of a history lesson, just for those that are curious. But Peglin started as a game jam game in October 2019. 
Um, I knew going into the game jam that I just wanted to like play with physics and just like make something like brick breakery or like, like angry birds. Um, the theme of the jam ended up being fall. And so we took our kind of brick breaker idea and flipped it on its head. So this is a gif of what we had for the original weekend. It was like the Peglin battle system, you know, obviously very, very rough around the edges, uh, kind of fun to look at, but also kind of fun that some of this stuff has just like made its way into the full game. It's, you know, the DNA is definitely there. Uh, this was like our 10th game published to itch.io after we had done the jam and just like cleaned up one or two more things and uploaded it a day or two later. And almost right away, we could feel that there was something different about it uh, compared to our other games. You know, the other games would maybe get a lot of playtime if they were part of like, you know, a Kenny jam or like the Game Maker's Toolkit jam where participants are encouraged to go and visit and play the other games. Um, this one, you know, was a small local jam, so it wasn't attached to any itch.io jam. So it didn't have that initial spike of players, but it had this like persistent rolling. And I was trying to find some pictures to kind of show off um, the, the metrics that we were looking at. But unfortunately, just like with the other games in our itch.io portfolio, it was just a little too muddy to demonstrate. Um, but just from like, you know, a kind of intuition level, we could really feel that there was something different with this game. And before we actually started working on it full time, uh, this kind of encouraged us to create a Discord. And we were surprised at, you know, like maybe two to three dozen people joining the Discord, like asking for more content um, in addition to some friends and family, which, you know, for that, for a jam game, just super, super rare. Um, so there was some kind of early indications that there was something here. Uh, at this point, we didn't have any solid, you know, intentions to continue to work on it. It was a successful game jam. It was a lot of fun. Um, the premise, had we continued at that point, was going to be um, very based on like puzzle quest. Uh, you know, what if like instead of the match three style, we took this kind of Peggle Pachinko style, um, and that was kind of what we were aiming towards. Um, so we jumped kind of into the early days. I kind of mentioned that, uh, you know, we saw those metrics. We saw like people were definitely interested in the game. Um, that was when we kind of decided, you know, especially with the pandemic kind of ramping up and things closing down around us. This was like probably three, three, four months after the game jam. So we're looking at like February, uh, March, 2020. Um, we decided to kind of pick this up as a main side project. And, you know, depending on the interest, we had the idea of either making it a small $5 game that we were going to have done in around six months. And it was just going to be one area with like very minimal, you know, no classes, no like expanded content or anything. Um, but we also had the kind of Slay the Spire at three act structure to kind of fall back on, which we had some rough plans for um, if the game was, you know, finding an audience and like, resonating with people. Um, we had some flexibility in our, our scope, depending on um, how popular the game ended up being. Um, well, prototyping at this phase, we found out pretty early on that like an RPG wouldn't really match what we personally were looking for. Uh, we wanted like really crazy synergies and combinations that would let the player just like completely explode the game. And if you're designing like an eight hour RPG, you have to be, you know, so careful about your power curve because you don't want somebody just like cruising through the last like 
five hours and not having any challenge or entertainment or anything. Uh, so we decided pretty early on that like, you know, a roguelike um, would match a lot better. Hey, you can, you can come in, you can build your crazy deck, you can collect all these crazy relics. It doesn't matter if you like blow past the last half of like a 40 minute or an hour run. Um, that's just kind of a fun little victory lap. And then you get to like start a new one and see if you can pull off the same thing or something similar. Um, around this stage, we were starting to release demos into digital Steam events, and YouTubers were already starting to pick it up, which was intimidating, um, but very, very, very useful for the game, not only from us being able to watch their videos and see you know, what needs tutorialization, what are they getting stuck on, um, but also for their audiences uh, joining our player base and providing like regular active feedback. Um, that was really, really exciting. The game just kind of had a certain like you know, je ne sais quoi, je ne sais quoi. Um, it was really like entertaining to watch somebody else play it, especially with like the navigation at that stage, which was in the game where, you know, you have to actually bounce your way through the pegboard to land where you want to go. Um, there are certain things that increase like the unpredictability, but still feel fair. Um, and I'll, I have a slide on like the streamability of a game. And so we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Uh, but I just wanted to touch on like, you know, early on, it was it was clear that people were interested in what was going on here. Um, so there's the path to your early access. This lasted about two years. So from, you know, roughly March 2020 uh, to that April uh, 2022 date, um, we had no development budget. You know, we maybe coughed up a few hundred dollars here and there to apply to various online events. Um, like a few hundred dollars, like over the course of the year, you know, a lot of things have like maybe $15, $20 application fees. Um, obviously some of them were not worth it. Others were worth 10,000 times that. Uh, so make of that what you will, you kind of have to, to learn which ones are worth it and which ones aren't. Um, so yeah, we worked on the side of full-time jobs. This was definitely starting to become pretty stressful, uh, towards the end until I, until I went full-time, you know, you're sitting there at a day job and you're just seeing like discord pings come up and it's like your community is kind of growing and kind of needs like a little bit more attention and a little bit more engagement at that time um so that was pretty stressful that was definitely like a little rough time uh in development wise but it was still very fun like having that community by the time you get off your full-time job you know motivation's running a little low you're tired and then you boot it up and there's people like excited about your game. They're like gushing about how much fun they've had. Like that was super useful for just like getting right back into it and kind of working another like three or four hour shift on most nights. Um, and again, because of the pandemic, we were kind of able to do that. You know, there wasn't family get togethers. There wasn't a lot of other obligations uh, that you might normally have. And then like, you know, my partner and I were living together, but we don't have kids and didn't have any pets. Um, so there was definitely an aspect of kind of the stars aligning to make the amount of development with no cash flow uh, possible. Um, but I guess that's just, you know, luck of the draw. Um, we did specifically kind of to kind of carve this space for ourselves at the beginning of the pandemic, knowing that it would be kind of good for our mental health. Um, so definitely some deliberate choices there and then a whole lot of luck. Uh, which I think is probably going to be like the the byline on the the Peglin 
um, biography is just, you know, there's always going to be a whole lot of luck. Um, in summer of 2021, uh, we were selected into the PAX 10 and then Yogscast picked us up like a week or two after. I don't know if they saw the game there or if it was just the game was kind of starting to bubble into something new. Um, that was like lighting a rocket um, that really changed the trajectory of the game. And I think we went from about 2,000 wish lists to about uh, 15,000 or 2,000 or 20,000 uh, pretty dang quickly. Um, and I put my like notice in um, after the game had passed 8,000, kind of in that little upwards trajectory. Um, yeah, that was pretty satisfying. Do, do recommend if possible. Uh, I was working in the games industry as well, but working on like mobile games that I wasn't super passionate about. Um, I was working as a, just an engineer and I had a team that wasn't very receptive to design feedback, you know, even though I was spending like so many of my evenings and weekends like playing with game design. Uh, so that was like a very big vindictive moment. Um, yeah, that always fun to be able to, to do that. Um, and even better, you know, when the game actually becomes profitable and you can continue to be a full-time indie uh, because anybody can kind of storm out of their job, but uh, you have to be pretty lucky again um, to continue doing that. Uh, the only, the last important thing before we move on here is that um, we were treating our demo at this point almost as if it was a live service game. Like streamers would come in and pick it up and we would catch their feedback and implement bug fixes, add more content. They would kind of come back like a week or two later to see the new content. Um, and it was definitely like really entertaining to kind of um, iterate on that. And we did that, you know, all the way up to our early access launch. And I think this is really important for like a first time development team. Um, and this wasn't our first, first game. We have one other commercial game on Steam from like five years ago, six years ago. Um, but not being super nervous when we hit that like release to public button really went a long way towards our launch week not being like immensely stressful because we had already been doing like regular releases at least once a week for like the prior like, you know, five or six months at that point when I had left my job and like really had gotten into the swing of things. And I think that just went a really long way towards like our confidence and our polish in the game. You know, if something needed a hot fix, it wasn't this huge, big, scary thing that we had to do because we'd done dozens and dozens of releases at that point. Um, and Steam itself is really good as like a distribution platform. Like, obviously, that's kind of what they do. But like, even if your game isn't ready to go public yet, if you give your like friends and family playtesters those closed keys, you can distribute builds to them just by using that system. And that's really good practice for when you're distributing that to, you know, thousands to hundreds of thousands of players down the line. Uh, so I really can't recommend that enough. Um, and itch.io does also have really good um, distribution tools. Their like Butler upload automation system is really, really good. So if you're not at the stage where you think you're going to want to drop that $100 on like Steam to get those tools, um, you can definitely do that with itch.io as well. Um, so one of my last little points here on game design is that genre combinations are super risky. 
Um, you know, uh, clearly Peglin is like a combination of two very disparate genres, like uh, physics puzzlers and roguelike deck builders. Um, you know, we can call it luck. We can call it some design on my uh, design skills on my part, probably a lot of both. Um, but we managed to appeal to that like entire Venn diagram, more or less. But you have to be really careful because it's very easy to like just appeal to that middle section. And depending on which genres you're combining, that might be almost non-existent, right? Like if you're appealing to people that really like turn-based things and you're adding in like action mechanics, you have to be very, very careful about that sort of thing. That being said, genre combinations like can be your entire hook, right? We have a lot of people that pitch Peglin just as like, they took Peggle and they mixed it with Slate Aspire, which is very true. And people that know what those games are get intrigued pretty quickly. You know, that's a pretty juicy, interesting thing. Um, Crypto the Necrodancer did this really well. Like, if you had told me on paper that they were going to take a rhythm game and combine it with like, you know, a roguelike, which is you know usually like a traditional roguelike in this case, you know, slower, thinky. Um, I would have thought they were insane, um, but you know that team is very, very uh, good at what they do. Uh, Ryan Clark knows his stuff marketing-wise. Um, highly recommend looking up some of the videos that he was doing uh, back when he ran the Clark Tank. Um, yeah, I'm super happy that it worked out for them, and you know, especially with the, the Nintendo crossover later. Uh, but you do have to be very, very cautious that you don't like trap yourself a little bit. Um, so design-wise, you know, what kind of went poorly? Um, we didn't have a ton of experience um, making this style of game before. Like, I've never really made a roguelike before. Um, and one of the things that kind of came to bite us is that as we were treating that, like, first demo area, that Act 1, as an open alpha, you know, we're iterating heavily, we're collecting feedback, we're really balancing everything. We ended up with like a very nice, tight, polished demo, but that was only one third of the game. And when it came time to expand that to encompass all three areas, the power curve for the player was like really messed up. And so in the like, you know, month, like that, that two to four weeks before launch, when we're really just kind of, we finished all the content, now we're coming in and we're like balancing everything out. Um, we had to really squash that power curve down so that you were getting it over the span of like an hour rather than over the span of 20 minutes. And to a lot of players, you know, that, that looked like nerfs and they were like really, really unhappy. And we had the potential for like a really kind of nasty, disastrous launch. Um, but I'm thankful that, you know, because so many uh, streamers and YouTubers kind of came out and picked up the game on day one. And, you know, we sent out a lot of keys as well, obviously, um, and, and showed it off and showed off, you know, that it did actually work. Uh, I think that kind of mitigated that for us. Um, but that is something that, you know, could have gone cat catastrophically wrong. You know, if they, if our, most of our player base just kind of thought that we had messed up the game and just, it was awful and terrible at that point, this thing could have entirely fallen on its face. Um, which is always an interesting thing to think about. Um, the next one is something that, you know, we've been struggling with for a while and have kind of just come to terms with the fact that like 
Peglin is never going to be as like tight and perfect and like I, I don't know how good is like slay the spire feels like everything just feels like so well balanced and so well thought out um because by the core nature of the pachinko aspect your shots can range in damage from like zero like you literally hit no pegs to like tens of thousands and you know we've had some combinations in the game that get into the millions um and we usually try to squash those down unless it's like a crazy combination of relics and orbs that is just like absolutely perfect. You know, we don't want like two things to just synergize together to blow that out um, because then that's obviously like the only dominant strategy. And, you know, we'd like to have like seven to 10 dominant strategies um, for the higher levels. And then on the lower levels, you know, we want almost anything to be able to cobble together as long as there's like any kind of mild synergy at all. Um, but yeah, it has been quite difficult for us to balance. That has been something that's that's been a little tricky for sure. Uh, for development, I don't have too much to talk about on this. Um, you know, if you look at Peglin, you can see that it's it's a pretty simple game. Um, I put together a tutorial on like how you make the Bachinko stuff uh, that takes like 20 minutes to, to follow through. And then obviously we've just been stacking on like all sorts of fun little uh, smaller pieces. Um, but I'll talk about you know some of our tools and some of the things that worked well and didn't work well for us. Um, yeah, so we'll just jump right to it. Uh, these screens are going to look familiar to a lot of people, I'm sure. Uh, but it's a game that's built in Unity. Uh, we use Trello for all of our project management. And I use Trello for game design as well. I find it's just a good way to break down like you know, a ticket can hold a lot of information. You've got checklists, you can link to other tickets if you want like epics and individual like tasks. Um, and then obviously quite easy to like lay it out in a timeline and like have it as like, um, this is what needs to be done for the next update. Here's what's testing. Our artists have a column for like stuff that's been done and ready for developer to look up. Uh, so that's worked out pretty well for us. Um, the development of Peglin, aside from the original game jam has always been fully remote. So lots of Discord, lots of just like chatting and calls and uh, cooperating that way. Um, here's the full list for those that are curious. So we use a lot of Unity assets. Um, I'm a firm believer that like the effort that you put into a project is not equivalent to the end experience that users get. Uh, that took me a long time to learn, but I'm at the point now where like if we can take like shortcuts that let us focus more on content and polish and user experience like i will take them in a heartbeat um, so we use things like the dialogue system for unity uh, which is excellent um, i2 localization i can't recommend heavily enough um, rewired for our controller input is just fantastic um, and i'm sure there's a handful of smaller ones that i'm not thinking of off the top of my head uh, and i use rider as an ide um, if you haven't tried it uh, i can recommend it very highly um, it's a little pricier than most other ides um, but it saves me enough time to easily be worth it uh, especially if you have any like intellij experience in your uh, repertoire um, then you'll you'll jump right into it uh, for art we use a sprite for all of our pixel art and adobe illustrator for all of our uh, promo art uh, trello as mentioned before um, git uh, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, yeah, that's it's all been worked uh, worked really well for us so far. 
Uh, obviously, Unity isn't perfect, but no tool is. Um, so if you have something that will let your team get to like a shift game, um, I would do that and then look at switching tools, you know, in your next game's prototype phase. I see too many indies that kind of get like halfway through like a year development project. So they've been working on a game for like six months and then they're like, ah, I, I don't really like this engine. It's time to switch over to something else. Um, but they kind of do that a few times and never really end up with anything. Um, so you definitely want to avoid that, right? Like the biggest thing as indies that we can do is just get things out there. Um, and I'm not saying stick with one tool forever. Um, my career started in Flash. I've already seen the depth of like my biggest development platform. Um, but you know, there's a time and a place for when to switch tools. Uh, and I think you have to be pretty deliberate about that. Uh, core development techniques that we had kind of never tried before um, and have used pretty heavily in Peglin. Uh, scriptable objects, it you know, took me ages to really figure out what they are, but once you know, they're really not that complicated. And we actually use that as a pattern to replace singletons, um, which lets us do a lot of really neat things like you know, having scenes that don't need an init scene beforehand to get everything set up. Um, the scriptable objects all kind of take care of that themselves and they're just assigned as references. And if we want to like subclass, like in Peglin, say our deck manager, and have one that does like special debug behavior, uh, we can just create another scriptable object for it and then assign that into like our debug scenes, uh, which is really cool. Um, I'm sure also some people are gonna cringe at this because it's not performant, but for indies, we usually don't have to care about that so much. You know, computers are kind of made to play these big AAA games. We have a lot of leeway. Uh, so we use delegates kind of all over the place. Um, and the observer pattern is something that I've become pretty fond of where, you know, manager classes and everything don't need to have direct information about uh, things that are kind of underneath them. They just are like receiving these messages for when important things happen. Um, and that's worked really well for us for, you know, being extensible. And again, like having scenes in the game that you can just jump into and start testing immediately um, without having to like go through all of the init stages of your game and then, you know, load into a particular scene. Um, so that's been really, really helpful for us. Uh, this next one is kind of business oriented. I kind of chucked it under development for like, uh, it's the development of the game. Um, the original Game Jam team, you know, we just had some like loose text chat arrangements for like, we'll take X percent and put X percent or Y percent aside. Um, we did get those solidified into actual contracts after the game had made some money because it's really hard to, you know, drop a couple hundred dollars on contracts when you don't have any money. Um, this did work out for us. You know, I, this is not legal advice by any means. I imagine there are other scenarios when it would not have worked out very nicely. Um, but the kind of one thing that I want to touch on here is like, make sure your contracts cover everything that you can possibly think of. And for us, like we went with a lawyer that isn't particularly game dev specific. And I think our contracts could have probably been a bit more comprehensive, especially when dealing with like the revenue share nature. Um, so that's definitely something to think about. Um, yeah, it's, it's a tough one to bring up because, you know, the game jams, you don't want to be sitting there spending the Friday afternoon writing up these contracts. Um, but I would really think about like some kind of agreements so that if some people want to take the game to a commercial state later, 
that they have a way to do so without you know the other people kind of being anchors if they're not interested and in also jumping in wholeheartedly. Sign up today for the Indie Game Business Newsletter. It's a weekly source of business news curated for indie dev teams. We've got discounts on all Indie Game Business events and events from all of our partners. You get a first look at the summaries and takeaways from all of our podcasts. There's exclusive opportunities for promotions and early access to new tools for development, monetization, and more. Check it out, sign up, powellgroupconsulting.com slash publisher dash list. Uh, so what went poorly development-wise? Uh, my biggest regret is that we just didn't know how popular the game was going to be. So we didn't build in any modding, um, which is very sad to me. Uh, there are a lot of like talented modders in our community that you know have like decompiled the game and then have added things to it that way and have like worked in mod managers. Um, I am like immensely grateful to them. I think they're incredible. Uh, but I do wish that we had just like built in the ability to like add orbs, relics, enemies, etc. Uh, because I would love to see what our players would create if we had given them the tools to do so. But just the way the game was built. It was built for like us to develop quickly, not to be extensible and like have external data being read in. Um, so you know, for Peglin two, that is something that we would look at uh, for sure. And then some parts of the game are quite brittle. Um, you know, there's a lot of like little bugs that kind of happen to us repeatedly, um, just from like these Unity UIs, and you're kind of enabling and disabling things to like tweak them visually, and then if you don't like leave them in the correct configuration. Um, you end up just like you load into the screen and the UI doesn't work and you have to go and, you know, it's just annoying. It's just kind of fiddly. Um, and I don't know if this is like stuff that we should be doing better versus just, you know, waiting for the new Unity UI systems, which who knows when those will come out, if ever. Um, so yeah, there's, there's some little fiddly things. Uh, but other than that, I mean, development has been pretty smooth. We really prioritize like making the game fun to work on. Um, and it, it really has been, you know, it's, it's pretty easy and quick for us to jump in and like test out new content and, and get that out to players, uh, which has been really, really important. Uh, from marketing side, you know, I think this is one of the things that uh, Peglin has been the luckiest with or has seen the most success with. Um, so we'll kind of jump into that. Uh, I have already given like a full talk in the past couple of months uh, for Roguelike Celebration, like strictly about marketing. Um, so if there's anything that I kind of glaze over that you're you're curious uh, more about, um, I would just give that a, a quick YouTube search and it, it should pop up. Um, with a lot of indies that are just getting started, I find like they think that marketing is like a dirty word. Like it's just like you're you're doing a disservice. You're like you're out there shoving flyers in people's faces and making people uncomfortable. Um, it really shouldn't be. Like there are players out there that are like actively looking for games, right? Like they're out there hunting for something to play and you being in the right place for them to see your game, like that is mutually beneficial. That is a good thing. Um, if you're out there and you're like pushing your game into places where people are not looking for it and you're getting like bad responses, 
then you're probably, you know, you're in the wrong place, I would say. Um, like we've tried a lot of like, you know, Reddit marketing in the past and Twitter marketing in the past and all that stuff and just like had no success because you're trying to just kind of push the game into places where people just aren't actively looking for it. Um, and you're not really helping anybody there. Um, this is also something that, you know, this is like I said, our, like our, our 10th uh, it's.io published game. I wouldn't say that we like ran full marketing campaigns for those, but you know, you share it on Twitter, you share it in Reddit, you kind of, you learn little things as you're doing that. You learn like where people are going to be more receptive and where they're going to be less receptive. And, you know, buy an ad, you get out of here. Um, so I do recommend doing that as well. Like when you're when you're making these game gen games, when you're completing these full projects, like go go the full circle with them. You know, like set yourself a, a little challenge. Like can I get like a hundred plays on my Ish.io browser game? Um, sometimes that's super easy. Sometimes that is extremely difficult. Uh, but it kind of sets up for when things might start to scale up. You'll at least have that kind of base knowledge. Um, so I think that's really important. Uh, next major point here is that marketing changes like so, so quickly. Like it's just such a, a rapidly evolving thing. Um, I would say that it actually like it changes faster than game development itself. Uh, you know, I've seen the rise and death of Flash, but I've been using Unity for like the past six years now. Still looking pretty stable so far. Um, in six years, like game marketing has changed dramatically. And, you know, obviously COVID has not helped with this. That has really thrown a wrench in the works. Uh, but in some ways, it's been pretty good for indies. Um, and then we'll talk about that a little bit. But yeah, the change is very fast. And you just you have to just kind of iterate and like honestly, like have fun with it. Like if marketing is such a chore for you that it's really like actively painful, um, you're probably not doing something right um, unless you are seeing amazing results and it's still painful, in which case I'm so sorry. Uh, but most of the time, like if you're having fun with it and you're out there, you know, sharing your game with people that are also excited about seeing your game, um, like it can be a lot of fun. It can be one of the most rewarding parts of, uh, of the whole game development process. Um, I learned like almost all of what I know from these two people. Um, I kind of mentioned uh, Ryan Clark earlier as well, but he's a little less active in like sharing information now, which, you know, is fair. He's got his own stuff to focus on. Um, but yeah, Chris Zukowski um, and Simon Carlos, like they both just have like really incredible newsletters and content that comes out. Um, and the kind of analysis they do is just like super helpful. Um, and especially in Chris's case, how to market a game there. Uh, he's got a discord where people will share like all the upcoming events and, you know, like deadlines, when to apply, how much it costs, was it worth it? Um, and that is just like so immensely helpful. Um, if you are like serious about being like a full-time indie, like you, you have to know marketing in some form. Um, and I, I can't recommend these two enough. Uh, so the biggest things for us marketing wise, like by more than anything else at all, uh, streamers and YouTubers, and then participating in digital events. So for streamers and YouTubers, like we just know absolutely everything to them. Um, you know, it, it is a symbiotic relationship. It's like they get a, a fun game to make content for, um, but we just get like all of their audience looking at our game. Um, and like we would not be doing this full time if it wasn't for them. I can like almost say that for sure. Um, we noticed early on that like when we spent time adding content to the game, it was like way more impactful than us like sending out tweets and like making sure that we were doing that like kind of manual marketing. 
because anytime we released an update, like a ton of YouTubers would come and like make another video, like what's new, what's in here. Um, and that is a really, really, really good place to be as an indie developer if you don't like marketing. Um, so you definitely, you know, you have to get the ball rolling to get there. Um, but once you're there, that is uh, really, really awesome. Um, so as I mentioned, like, you know, we, I sent out like hundreds of keys, uh, especially in the lead up to the early access release. Um, I'm pretty sure I got marked as like spam for a while, which kind of sucked. But uh, I think my email is back to normal now. Um, and that was like, I was not using a mailing list or anything like that. These were like manual emails. Um, but I was working off a template, which I guess started to trick some uh, trip some some spam filters. Um, so that was a little funny. Um, I, don't, I don't know how to avoid that, but try to avoid that if you can. Um, yeah, you know they need to find your game first. Uh, digital events were definitely the way to do that during like the heart of the pandemic. Um, still an excellent way to do uh, way to go. Um, I know that Valve is kind of tampering down on like Steam featuring digital events, which is a big shame. Um, but it's still like participating in these, getting the word out. Um, that is where you're going to kind of cultivate the original player bases that are then going to like suggest the game to their favorite streamers. That's where those early streamers are going to pick up the game, which tends to kind of snowball, you know, assuming your game has that replayability, um, which we'll get into in a little bit. Um, apply to just like anything and everything that matches your game, you know, unless it's got a big uh, uh, price uh, price tag on it, you got to be a little careful there. Some of them, you know, I've seen like $100 application fees, uh, but most are kind of 10 to 20. Um, if you're working on a team, talk with your team about like, you know, what are they okay with spending here? Um, because, you know, we were spending like a few hundred dollars a year, um, which in retrospect is kind of nothing. But if the game had made nothing, it's like that's an unfortunate, you know, um, uh, cost for people that are just working day jobs and then trying to get by. Um, before you have that marketing budget, that can that can feel pretty intimidating. Um, but it can absolutely be worth it. You know, if you're if you're really serious about your game, um, I would try and set something a little a little bit aside uh, to be able to do that because you're investing so much of your time in your game. Um, it's a big shame if you're not you know, kind of capitalizing on everything that will get it in front of people, um, you know, in front of those players that, that want to find your game, that want to play your game. Um, this is the big braggy slide, but I really just have this in here for like, you know, these people didn't like find Peglin and be like, yes, seal of approval, great game. Like all of these represent like the application sent in for that actual event and like, 10 to 15 applications for other events that didn't go anywhere. Like when I was too tired to work on the game, um, you just, I would look for events and just like see what's going on out there. As mentioned before, like uh, Chris's Discord, excellent source for finding things that might otherwise fly under your radar. And as an indie developer, like I would get really comfortable filling out Google Forms. You know, have like some marketing snippets for your game that you can like. Um, just move in there so you're not rewriting it every time. Um, but you're going to be filling out a lot of forms. Like that's just how it's going to go. Um, and the last little piece of marketing here, other than the, the what went poorly, um, just streamability of your game. Peglin, you know, really falls in here. Um, yeah, it was really a game that I just wanted to make for myself. I wanted something lighthearted, replayable, fun, and bouncy. Um, but there's just a lot of elements that worked really well for like watching somebody play that game. 
Um, so that is something that just definitely really worked well for us. And it, it wasn't really something I was like planning for originally. Um, but once we started to see that happen, we kind of, you know, leaned into it, cleaned up things that would maybe be a little less, uh, bit more confusing for viewers. Um, the bouncing to navigate to where you want to go to is like such a, um, uh, diversive, like, uh, feature, like some players just absolutely hate it. But when you're watching somebody play and they just like have this fluke bounce that sends them the wrong way and they throw their hands up and like disbelief, like those moments are just so fun to watch. The moments where like somebody hits a chain of bombs and their relic triggers at the right time and they end up with like 30,000 damage and there's this big cheer and it's just exciting. Like those moments are fun to watch, right? So identifying what those are in your game and leaning into them, um, really, really important. Um, hard to find content. You know, if a YouTuber can make a video just solely about like, hey, how do you get this relic that people are wondering about? Like that's more content that they can kind of look into your game for. Um, you really, if you're thinking about it from their perspective while you're adding stuff, you can come up with some really neat synergies between you and the streamers. Um, and that, that can go a really, really long way. What went poorly marketing-wise? Um, social media did next to nothing. You know, um, to date, I think like between myself and the Twitter account, we have like 3,500 followers. Um, that's like 2,500 more than we had before we started the game. I think we had a total of 1,000 between the two of us, if that. Um, your accounts, from what I've seen, unless you're really out there like memeing it up and like working those engagement fields, um, you're really going to get big from your game, not vice versa. I, I, you know, I've seen devs that have like a hundred thousand followers from like whatever they've been doing, um, that launch a game and just have like next to no engagement because people are following them just for the tweets and the, the, the content, um, and aren't interested in the game themselves. Um, so if you're looking at it where it's like, I've got to build a big Twitter and then I can release a game, uh, don't do that. Please don't do that. Um, yeah, focus on what is working for you. Try out those little games, find out where people are excited to learn about your game uh, and lean into that instead of trying to like build a following with memes and then trying to convert that. Um, I'm sure there are success stories out there. I'm sure there are, but I wouldn't say that it's like the normal thing. Um, traditional games press, this is something that we're kind of trying to turn around a little bit just to kind of invest in our like future games, just to kind of get that brand awareness out. Uh, but to the actual success of Peglin, um, almost nothing. Uh, I will give a shout out to like John Walker, um, who would regularly like uh, take like over the front page of Kotaku whenever like the US had holidays. Um, and he would just like feature indie games. He would just do these like big indie, like uh, big indie cover show kind of things. Uh, that was really, really cool. Um, and that definitely had like a little bit of an impact, but like, you know, I wouldn't say that's the big reason. Um, maybe some streamers found the game that way. It's hard to say, but like, if you were to remove that entirely, I think we'd be in like a pretty similar spot. Um, but it is always, you know, it's good to see, it's good for motivation and all of that. Um, and then the other thing that went poorly is like once the ball like really got rolling, it like it was just like this behemoth. It was crazy and like so unpredictable. Um, but it took a long time to kind of get there. You know, we were happy with the metrics that we were seeing compared to like our itch.io games. Um, but if I was to just be an indie dev and like work on this game for a year and then release it, like if that was a full-time thing, you know, I would have been pretty worried around that like 
six to eight month mark, not really seeing a lot of movement. Like I, I think in that first year, you know, we maybe had a thousand wish lists, and like that is a tough thing to launch a game on. Um, but we were happy enough with like the engagement that we were getting like in our Discord and with players and streamers actually paying attention to the game, even if it wasn't leading to those like concrete numbers at the time, that we felt decent about like putting a bit more into the game, and especially because we were working on it on the side of full-time jobs for fun, it ended up working out. But there was no like immediate, just like we tweet about the game and boom, 10,000 wish lists. We know it's going to be successful. Um, so it's hard to tell if like Peglin would have been made in a different environment, uh, which is a little bit tricky. Um, some other things that went poorly, um, Alpha Beta Gamer. Alpha Beta Gamer is like an awesome YouTuber that just like features like really experimental up and coming games. I think there's like a perfect time where we could have jumped in there and it would have worked really well to kind of speed up that rolling. Uh, we kind of missed it. By the time I was like reaching out to him, the game had already been picked up by a bunch of people and it kind of missed his window, even though I think it was still experimental enough, but I think that's okay. Uh, Steam forums got super toxic really quickly. And like, it took me like a week to just be like, throw my hands up and be like, no, these players are not interested in the game. They're literally just like, I, I call them players, but like, I don't think any of them bought the game. They were literally just in there like trolling, harassing, and they would like make threads like full of, um, full of like, uh, you know, swear words and all this kind of like horrible stuff. And you would delete it and then you'd get accused of like censorship. And it was like, really, they were like just out there to cause trouble. And I finally just like said like, no, like the Steam forums, people are not like interacting in good faith. Unfortunately, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of good like reports and stuff in there, but I will just, I cannot look at it for like my mental health for the, the sake of like working on the game. No way. Um, and you can actually reach out to Valve and be like, hey, you know, my Steam forums are a bit of a mess right now. Can you like watch those for a week or two so that I don't get like the brunt of having to manage all of that? Um, and that was something that we did a little too late. Um, and it definitely like made that launch week, which should have been like really exciting and fun and us focused on like, you know, responding to real player issues, um, turned it into a bit of a mess and like left kind of a bad aftertaste in my mouth. Uh, but thankfully, we figured that out, you know, decently quickly and kind of moved on from there. And every other community, like our Reddit community, the emails that I get, our Discord, wonderful. Just fantastic community, so fun to make a game with. Steam forums, for whatever reason, bad gamer land. Don't recommend looking at the Steam forums. Um, and then the last one is like, we left a lot on the table that we could have been doing. We dabbled in TikTok a little bit. I think we have one TikTok that has like 40,000 views. The rest have like 800. So I think if we had kind of like really invested a bit more time into that, we could have seen some really good results. Um, the problem is that nobody on the team like loved doing it. So it was just kind of fell off to the side, um, which isn't ideal. Uh, just into some kind of missed points before we kind of get into the summary and wrap things up. Uh, community localization has worked pretty well for us, you know, kind of varying results across the different languages, but we also have languages that we wouldn't have paid a localizer to do. So it's kind of some interesting pros and cons. Uh, for simplicity's sake, in the future, like just go for a localization studio if you can afford it. Um, a Chinese publisher, we've partnered up with IndieArc. That has worked really well for us. China is our third biggest market behind the US and Germany. Um, that's been really awesome, and I'm hoping that it will kind of pay off a bit more once we release on mobile, which in China, you know, you need an ISBN number, you need to be working with the Chinese publisher anyway. 
Um, the money, you know, it's been exciting. Like, woo, yay, we did it. Um, it's caused like roughly as many problems as it's solved. Um, it's nice having that stability. Um, unfortunately, with the public facing nature of our industry, you know, my friends and family have a rough, um, in, like rough idea of how much money I make, which like ranges wildly. Some of them are just so far off. Um, yeah, that's, that's been interesting. Um, it won't solve all of your problems is all I'm saying. Uh, my dream for the past 10 years is to make a successful game. Uh, I definitely had a moment where like we hit that hundred thousand like sales mark, which was something I'd always dreamed of. And I'm kind of sitting there like, you know, now what? Um, that was in the first two weeks of early access. That was kind of my big, my big goal, my big dream. The game still needs a lot of development. The game is just getting started, just entered early access. Um, and I hadn't really ever sat down. I've been so busy running from like one milestone to the next that I had never really sat down and thought about like what came next or what that would mean or expanded what that goal would be. Um, so I felt a little lost shortly after that. Um, and thankfully, we, you know, with the super engaged player base and everything, like they were a great source of motivation. Um, but yeah, that was a bit of a wake up call. It was just kind of, you know, it's, you have these dreams and you've been working on it for so long and then it happens and what happens next. Um, I, I don't want to use this slide as like a big boasty slide. I just, I want to include that in the postmortem of like, there are things that, you know, maybe you should plan for and, and be prepared for um, because I was not. And I kind of wish I'd used an alias. Um, you know, the game has kind of reached a threshold now, like we're, we're coming up on 400,000 sales. And like, that's a lot of people to like see your name in the credits and like be able to find out roughly where you live from other information. Um, I was, there was a, a Phil Fish podcast that came out like a few weeks ago that, you know, he kind of talks about how one of the reasons he left the industry is because it's like having a sewer pipe, like directly into your living room. Just you get like all this big internet opinions and like people are so toxic online when they would never say the same things to your face. Um, yeah, I kind of wish I'd used an alias. If you're early in your career, maybe something to think about. Um, it's a, it's a tough one. I could probably do a whole talk just on that, but, uh, this is me. I, I didn't. So here I am. Um, my kids will have to deal with this one day, maybe. Um, key takeaways. Game jams are incredible. Do every game jam you can. They are so good. Uh, don't be afraid to make small games, but have that backup plan. Peglin was going to be like a six-month, $5 project. When we saw that interest start to grow, you know, 800, 1,000 wish lists, even if it wasn't that much, um, it was enough to know that there was like a lot of potential there compared to the other games that we had seen which is why releasing small games is good because you kind of have a lot to pull from. You know when there's an outlier, even if it doesn't look crazy to like, you know, a team full of suits that probably would have nixed the game pretty quickly. Uh, more games that you release, you know, you'll have that radar. Um, yeah, Peglin was never meant to be like this crazy successful thing. I did not sit down and like design the like the pop song that's gonna like rocket to the charts. Um, I just made a small game for me and it's just grown past that. Um, streamers for indies are like easily the best form of marketing that we have, but it can change very, very quickly. So be agile, be adept, um, keep your ear to the ground, be friendly to people around you. Um, you never know, you know, who will tell you what the next big thing is, who you'll be working with. Um, we've had, like, we've been interacting with a ton of other indie devs and they've been super, super helpful. Like there's no way we would be where we are without them. Uh, it's a small industry, you know, be kind. Um, yeah, uh, bundle with other indies if you can. 
um, when we partnered with Roundguard, who you know clearly got there before us, um, but were very friendly about it. When we were in a bundle with them, they actually had their biggest sales day uh, since launch day, um, which was really really cool that we could kind of come back and like kind of build that up together. And we also saw like a pretty huge boost. It was just like the act of bundling up together was this big press beat of like, look, they're not enemies. They're actually friends. It was really, really neat. Um, what's next for us? We're still working on Peglin like really actively. We've got a big update coming soon. And then console and mobile ports will be later this year. And then eventually we'll probably see some more games from myself and Red Nexus, hopefully. But right now all we can be, ah, right now all we can think about is Peglin. Um, we're extremely grateful to you know our community. Uh, we don't want to like jump um, jump that ship too quickly. Uh, Twenty dollars was a lot to ask. We want to make sure that the game is worth that and more. Uh, so Peglin for the foreseeable future, and then eventually more small games, ideally. Thank you. I didn't quite talk quickly enough, but I did leave a few minutes for questions. Uh, so thank you all so much. And uh, we'll see how many we can answer here. Dylan, that was absolutely perfect. It was, yes, it was a fire hose of knowledge, but it's all good <laughs> knowledge. And plus these things are, you know, online forever. So people can go back and watch it, you know, Im immediately. So, um, and I always love hearing these stories and what I want to know was when did you, you know, check your dashboard and go, oh shit. <laughs> now um, it was like four hours later, I would say. Like it was like we didn't, you know, I, I was used to checking the wish list once a day because those only update once a day, but the sales update like hourly. Um, and that was when things really started to just get kind of crazy. And then, yeah, we hit like top sellers either later that day or the next day. And we were nestled between like the Steam Deck and like Elden Ring. And that was a big like, oh my God, what is happening moment. Um, that was a little scary, honestly. So, I mean, when it came to, and I was having a conversation with a friend of mine at the same time, when it came to, okay, we've obviously got something that's going to be bigger than we thought it was going to be what were your first steps in like ramping up or was uh, there one, or did just go, we oh, oh there were for sure um especially with that kind of uh the steam experience that we had had because that kind of started a few days before uh release because people were like complaining about the price um that you know you check their post history and they're just complaining about the price of every indie game so like don't take too much stock into that if you're seeing the same things um, but that, you know, that was really flaring up because we had a lot of passionate players that would come in and like defend the game a little more vehemently than they should have been. You know, they're also making comments that kind of require the thread to be like locked down. Um, so the first thing we did was like hire a community manager. It was like, I'm not going to be able to like work on the game and deal with all of this. Um, so that was a huge big thing. And then the rest of the team, after seeing the day one numbers, I was still the only person working full time. They were all pretty worried. Um, they left their jobs like that day, put in their notice and we're like, no, this is, this is a full-time thing now. Um, so yeah, launch day, launch week was incredibly exciting for sure. That was something else. Well, I mean, congratulations. I mean, it, it, it is terror when that sort of thing happens, but it's a good kind of terror because you know, everything's going to be fine. At least. For yeah. You, you just have to plan for it really. And that was something that we uh, really didn't uh, focus on.
So, question from Twitch: Do you worry at all about giving out keys to scammers or key resellers? Yeah, I mean, we obviously try to avoid it as much as we can. Um, something else that I did early on is I filtered out the word curator from um, my Gmail because we were just receiving literally like hundreds of spam letters every week. Um, and, you know, the, the curator system, it has good intentions, but was really poorly implemented. And all of these curator requests for Steam curators are requesting Steam keys. They're not asking that you send them to the curator system, which gives them the game directly. They want Steam keys um, because they're just planning on reselling them. And you know, I'm sure my, my hit rate hasn't been 100% on identifying like what is a spam and what isn't. Unfortunately, some um, like well-meaning people are probably getting caught up in like my paranoia. Um, but yeah, there's just so many, especially when your game like reaches, you know, that front page of Steam, that really just like sets the bots on you. Um, and it's been pretty chaotic since then. Uh, one thing that I have noticed is there's this like trend on YouTube now where like a YouTuber with like 20,000 followers will request a key and you click in and you go and there's a bunch of comments under the video, but none of them have any engagement. There's like no likes or replies. And then you watch the video itself and it's like not quite a Microsoft Sam, but it's clearly like an AI voice, just like reading like a review of the game over like stock gameplay footage. Um, but we've had like literally like, like if not like the high dozens, like hundreds of requests from those accounts. Um, so they've definitely gotten a lot trickier since the last time I released a game six years ago. Um, but yeah, you, you do have to be careful. So, so we're seeing basically people creating chat gpt youtube pages and using ai to go through and well that's comforting that's good that's good to yeah do. and on first blush they look really legit right if you look at them it looks like oh this is a youtuber with like twenty five thousand followers all of their videos get like ten thousand views and they have like you know over 100 comments like those are all good signs um and i don't know what kind of tripped me off on the first couple but they just something had a bad smell to it yeah. And then, yeah, you watch the video itself, and it's just like, yeah, this isn't a real person doing this. This is that random voice off of TikTok. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, so on the Discord, someone says, have your mind ever been completely blown by watching someone live stream the game? It's like, oh, my God, you're actually crushing it. Oh, so many times. Um, yeah, you just you see some of the crazy combinations and it's like you kind of thought that maybe it would work, but they're using it in a way that you didn't quite expect. And now they're in the like low millions of damage on every shot. It's like <laughs> you think it would be fun and like it is super fun the first time you do it. But like if that becomes the thing where you're just doing that every single run, like it's actually pretty boring and samey. Um, it's like playing other games with God mode on, right? So unfortunately, like we do have to nerf and we do have to like break those combinations at least into more pieces so that it happens less frequently. But the nice thing about a roguelike is like, you know, if it takes like 10 pieces of Exodia to make this crazy game winning combo, like that's fine. Like if, if you have the stars align and you have these big crazy runs, like that's actually something that like we want in the game. We just don't want it to be like uh, obtainable every single time. Yeah, you need those runs every now and then when you can just completely stack everything and everything's complementing everything else. And but yeah, with a roguelike, you're not guaranteed to get that every single time. 
yeah words. just the big palate cleansing revenge run yes Those are exactly so it's like dessert kind of yeah yeah exactly yeah so with the emphasis is often on quality rather than quantity you previously mentioned that some of the things you committed to were beneficial while others were not would you recommend foregoing the fees and conducting more thorough research or simply diving in and evaluating the results yeah, that's a really tough call. I um, mean, you know, we didn't dabble with like ads or anything, which are really like, like really results driven and really hardcore to like analyze, you know, in mobile games, it's like you want to figure out your average revenue per player and then pump in like that amount minus a cent for like user acquisition. Um, so you have like really concrete metrics that you can look at. Um, for us, you know, not too many events jump out where like, I feel like we were kind of like ripped off or anything. Um, some events took more time than I would have liked. You know, you fill out the Google form, you're like, yeah, okay, they have my Steam game information, that's awesome. And then they follow up with like, you know, a form that's like 10 pages long and needs all these custom assets. And it's like more in depth than like setting up your Steam page. Um, those ones I was a little bitter about. But yeah, none of the like money that we spent, I really regret. Um, you just have to be careful because there's just just you know so many events out there. Uh, but for big ones like packs, you know, I think it's like it's, it's between fifteen and twenty five dollars to apply to be in the packs ten. And if you like think that your game has a strong chance at appearing in there, like that's worth every penny. And you know that's that's like a meal. It sucks if you don't have that marketing budget. Like we absolutely did not. Um, but when we actually got in there. Like that, you know, that's like $10,000 of value. If you want to actually spend to get in the same place that they provide for the PAX 10, like it's immense. It's just huge. So what, I mean, obviously you've been on our server, our Discord server for a while and you know the community with all the folks there that are coming in and, you know, trying to get that start and starting these small studios. What is the single biggest thing you wish you had known beforehand that you know now? Hmm. That is a really good question. Um, yeah, for games, I feel like I fell into it pretty naturally with like falling into game jams and like iterating and just like slowly getting bigger. Like I worked in the industry, um, mostly doing live service games, which probably like led to that feeling a bit more natural. Um, but like before I got into games, I was attempting to become like an author. I always thought it'd be very cool to tell stories, you know, in a linear non-digital fashion before I made that jump. And, you know, I never worked on short stories. I jumped straight into like trying to write like a novel. I got like 14 chapters in, it was a pretty impressive effort, but then the whole thing just kind of unwound. And by the time I got that far, you know, you're rereading your earlier stuff to ensure stuff is consistent. And your writing has improved so much from just sitting down and putting, you know, pencil to paper that now you feel like you have to rewrite the beginning. Um, and I see the same thing happen with indie devs a lot. And like it, you know, it torpedoed my potential writing career. Like that has taken 10 years off of that at least. Um, and thankfully, by the time I got into games, it felt a bit more natural to like make these small things and, and game jams kind of teach you that. Um, so, you know, just do not try and make like your, your dream game right off the bat. Um, scope is such an important thing in our industry and like finishing things is a skill in and of itself. So even if you were somehow able to make your like, you know, indie version of Skyrim that you've always dreamed of, uh, you aren't going to know like where to share that or how to market that or any of those things. Um, those are skills as well. 
that really need you know polish and practice and working with. But as an English major in college, I completely feel the whole writing thing and wanting to do the. <laughs> God, yes, I know. I wish somebody had you know pulled me on the shoulder and had told me like, "Hey, start with short <laughs> stories, and if you can get stuff out there and published, then you can work your way up." But hindsight is twenty twenty. So. so I mean, but I think it's a it's a really good point because I mean we've seen games from itch in particularly go on and be successful in mainstream and it's like you know we've got your work and backpack hero just came out as well so we're starting to see more and more of these and the beauty of it for indie devs is like if you go and you start selling your game in early access on steam you're going to whether without whether or not you intend to alienate roughly 50 percent of the possible publishers that are out there in 25 years of doing this and however many years itch.io has been around i have never had a publisher tell us we don't want to publish that game because it's on itch and mm -hmm. so it's a wonderful place to like you said test these you know test smaller games don't try to put you know and god i've seen them too i know you know developers come to us and there are three people and it's their first game and it is it's like we're going to do the indie version of skyrim and i'm like no you're not there's just <laughs> not it's not, not going to happen um but yeah i agree with you i think that's a wonderful way to you know get started on a lot of these things and so i i would encourage more people to do it and also you know thanks for you know busting that myth of i can do this right out of the gate with you know my first game it's like you said you know you've got a, a long experience in the industry anyway but i mean heartfelt congratulations because y'all y'all killed it on this one and it's always oh, good to see you, so you know good games succeed like that um but yeah we've kept you here long enough um Folks listening, if you get your ticket, we will send you the deck automatically after the conference. Um, but anything else, Dylan is around on our Discord server. It's discord.gg slash indie game business. Uh, and with that, we're done. That was our 13th or 14th. We're starting to lose count at this point in time. Uh, <laughs> online conference. And that's going to wrap it for a day. There is not going to be a podcast tomorrow, uh, but we will be back next week to help you get ready for GDC. So that's it. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Tripwire. Dylan, keep up the good work, and we'll see you all soon. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, Jay. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at indiegame.business.